On April 5th, Bank of America's chief executive, Brian Moynihan, sat down with the Washington Post's senior economics correspondent, Damian Poletta, as part of the onstage CEO interview series. In the interview, Moynihan discussed how loosening Dodd-Frank regulations would impact both industry and consumers, how foreign countries are responding to President Trump's trade policies, whether the banking industry can improve public perception, and much more. Let's listen. Good afternoon, I'm Damian Paletta. Uh, excited to be kicking off the new Executive Actions uh, CEO series today with Brian Moynihan. Thank you so much for joining us. A quick reminder to our audience that I will be taking a few of your questions via social media throughout our conversation. Uh, you can tweet those questions using hashtag CEO Live. Um, Mr. Moynihan, so it's early April, um, opening day baseball, hope springs eternal. The Red Sox won yesterday. They're, uh, they're on their way to 162 and zero, right? Right. So are the Nationals and my beloved Cardinals. So speaking of optimism, can you tell us a little bit about, obviously we saw a big surge in optimism um, at the end of last year, at the beginning of this year, consumer confidence and business optimism. What are you seeing? Is that translating into any new behavior? Well, when you think about, uh, start back with uh, our estimates for the economy this year to grow a little over 2%, which is up from 1.6% last year. So that shows you we're growing again year-over-year -year growth. When you look at consumer data and their spending on Bank of America, the volume in the first quarter was up about 5 to 6% versus last year in terms of credit cards and debit card spending. And the overall movement of cash, which means checks paid and cash out of ATMs, which consumers then consume and use, was up about 3%. And that's faster than it's been. So it's nice and solid. And that's always good news because, you know, to give you a sense on the debit and credit cards, that's $40, $50 billion a quarter. So oh. it's a, a, a month, excuse me, a month. And so it's a big number. And so that's, that's good news. And businesses are optimistic. I think their optimism you know, charged after the election on the theory that um, the issues that were important to them, regulation, uh, administration they believe was gonna deal with regulation, deal with tax, deal with some of those issues. Uh, it really rose, an unprecedented thing. So now the question is, as that the reality of the process to get all this done meets their needs, there's been a debate about whether it's enthusiastic, but overall loan demand's solid and things are fine. And so are they, were you seeing the most demand for loans? Is it small businesses, mid-sized businesses? Are they building new plants? I mean, has the rubber kind of met the road yet? Well, the, the consumer side's been strong, spending-wise, borrowing demand is high. You know, mortgage rates move up a little bit, everybody gets nervous, but the volume's been relatively consistent. Home equity loan volumes are up higher now because people have equity in their homes. Auto loans were very strong, and obviously their, their sales slow down. That then slows down the auto loans because they're really new car sales. Um, but on the business side, you'd say that, you know, the, just to give you a sense, the deal, the fee pool, as they call it, investment bank in the first quarter was, around, was up 17%-ish versus last year's first quarter. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing the activity come back in the market. Now, last year, there was a little bit of a, people forget that only a year ago, we had China and the slowdown and everything, and the right. whole world froze up a little bit. So that's a good comparison. But that's strong. And then and you look in the business, in our segment in the lower end, the volume of applications for credit and stuff is up in the lower end of the business community, small business, business bank, we call it. So we feel very good. People have to remember it's a 2% growth economy, so the loan demand is going to match that. So the actual loan usage and stuff is at high levels on a historical basis, but it isn't going to grow a lot unless the economy grows faster. One of the things that's been most frustrating about this economic recovery has been wage growth. Um, can you tell us what you're seeing in that, and do you expect that to sort of pick up as the economy picks up? 
Well, and you're seeing it grow now, and you're seeing, so if you look at the, a lot of the work done around median wage versus average wages, and there's a lot of dynamics in the average wage with people leaving at a higher level and new people coming in and some of the age dynamics going on in the workforce. But the median wage is 2.8%. It's getting to the point where, as you see from the Fed dialogue, that it's getting to where that becomes inflationary unless we start to address it. Right. And so we feel it's very constructive. Um, when you look at a company like ours, you know our wages continue to grow, and that's one of the challenges you have running a business in a slower growth in economy. Uh, and we've, if you look at our people paid in, in the lower half of, of our people, they actually have had about a seven percent annual increase over the last ten years. They're seven years since I've been CEO, seven percent per year, and so they've been growing their wages, and, and that's been a dynamic we've been driving at to increase the pay scale. So, and I think that dynamic plays out in other companies. But it's in, it's interesting. Um, that I guess in the election, we felt like we saw a lot of Americans who felt like they'd sort of been left behind, right? And obviously, maybe they don't have jobs in banking, retail banking, or finance. You know, is there is there becoming more of a disconnect? You think between a lot of kind of heartland Americans and you know people who work at banks? Well, I think there is because that's what the statistics show. But I think a lot of it has to do with uh, a lot of that is is there's obviously that dynamic out there that people feel that they've not participated as strong. You're seeing average wage growth not be as strong. So our job as a company is to you know, handle our employees the right way. So we have 210,000 people work for us, and we've been driving that you know, nobody starts now in our company that earns that the minimum starting wage is $15 per hour. You know, that's full benefits, same benefits I have at about 20% uh, of the rate they pay versus what the upper paid people pay and stuff. So we've been driving that. And I think that dynamic goes on with large employers. And, and so the question is, what are the jobs available and what the pay scale for the jobs and things? And that's kind of the dynamic of the manufacturing jobs and all that debate that went on in the election. And so we've got to fix that. We've got to fix that by training people and, and pulling back part of that world's capacity to produce those higher value tasks back to the United States. Right. And that's the, that's the dialogue that's going on. So you're in the risk management business, obviously. Um, what, what, would you say that there's uncertainty in Washington now? I mean, obviously you've seen uncertainty here before. How would you characterize the kind of um, policy environment now out of Washington? Well, we got asked, a, you know, as a CEO, you got asked a lot about that, how you deal with the uncertainty and stuff. And I say, well, you know, our company's been around a long time. That election in 1800 was a really tough one to get through, and we were here then. <laughs> and, you know, and the- ATM machines were really slow. Yeah, they were. Uh, but the person became president, and the vice president brought up on trees and charges. It was kind of an interesting time in American history. And so, you know, the world, America's wonderful because the democracy has lasted longer. And so life will go on. But, you know, I think that the uncertainty created by, you know, the election dialogue that leads into the reality of governing and how to get things done and the difficulties of getting the substantial majorities to get things through Congress and the differences in, in parties and stuff. You've, you're seeing all play out. This is not new news to anybody in this room, obviously, but, but that's a dynamic that is always there. Yeah. And so if you go back to when President Reagan, you know, on the platform, he was going to eliminate three of the cabinet secretary positions and merge them together didn't happen. And so these things are always harder. The question is, can we get something out of all this effort that helps us you know, deal with some of the fundamental issues? And that we have, I have great hope for, and I think a lot of people do, and we'd like to see it. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put the uncertainty issues different than they've always been. And so if, you, if there could be one or two issues, you know, um, legacy type issues for this administration, what, what, do you, what would you recommend they be? Well, when you talk to our clients that are in corporate America and then driving job formation, driving a competitive America and driving things from an American standpoint, you know, the tax rates are a really important issue to right. them because in the end of the day, the U.S. tax rates are very high compared to the rest of the world, which causes them to 
think about how they operate their businesses differently. And so that is a dynamic that, by the way, has been understood in place for a long time to try to do it. There's been joint um, agreements in the prior Congresses that, you know, thought of how to lower the rates and make it more competitive. That's one. The second is to how to, you know, deal with a competitive America and continue to train and education. And there's a right. lot of work that goes on um, with various industry groups and various outside industry groups trying to figure out how to drive more STEM capabilities uh, in students and, and more apprentice-like training and things like that. That's going on and we have to get that. That allows the content to come back. Um, but if you look at those clients, it's getting workers that are trained for the job. It's the tax rate. And it's also just the, you know, the ability to move their goods around the world, all of which are on the table and, and they're worried that they come out the right way. But tax reform is so tricky, right? Because everyone wants a lower rate, but there's and obviously, if you pay less in taxes, you have more money to invest. But the trick is that there might be more money, a lot less money flowing into the treasury, yeah. and we could blow out the deficit and the debt. And I, everyone's kind of in favor of their tax rate getting cut, but you don't want your, you know, deduction to be taken away. So you just define revenue neutrality, right? Fiscal conservatives. <laughs> that, that, that's that definition. At the end of the day, the pot's got to be about the same. And the question is how you divide it up and who gets assessed the taxes. And as a full cash taxpayer, which a banking system is, you know, it, it, we just because of the nature of the business, just don't, you know, it, it tusks, you know, lower rates would be beneficial, but from a broad corporate America standpoint, you have various groups that have various ideas of what the right answer is. Um, but I think, you know, the idea of repatriation, bringing the money back, those are, you can build more consensus around faster than you can about how the tax code looks. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reality is, I think there's uniform belief, and there should be, that the rates have to come down. Right. And because if you're that uncompetitive, then what happens is behind the scenes, the migration occurs that you don't see. And so that, and that goes on slowly but surely. In the outside the United States demand, when people look back in the 96 tax reform or earlier, 80s, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and when they did repatriation in the 90s and stuff, they're forgetting that a fundamental dynamics change is the outside the world demand for most of these companies is as big as the U.S. demand or bigger. Right. And you can access it through the EU, through a common mechanism now and things like that that have changed the dynamic about when you're running a large company, how you're going to operate it, that are far different than they were 20, 30 years ago. One of the things we heard again and again from the president, we heard it again it was just 30 minutes ago, he's talked about how Dodd-Frank is hurting lending, making it harder for the economy to grow. What is your take on that? And if there could be any changes to Dodd-Frank, you know, maybe you support big changes to Dodd-Frank, what should they be to help you know, encourage more lending to thaw that market? I think there are two sides to that. One is you have to think about what our industry and our company did to sort of make sure that would never happen again, so to speak. And, and so, you know, we, we have basically three times the amount of capital we had before the crisis. Um, and those are not small numbers. It's only 60 billion to 160 billion, 170 billion, 170 billion now. Think about that. That's not, and the balance sheet hasn't grown that much. Um, so you had three times the capital, four, five times the liquidity, blah, 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 and the risk is down. So you, you can go through all the statistics. And it's not only in Dodd-Frank, but in all the stuff around the regulatory reform it led to higher capital levels, higher liquidity, safer activities, uh, less complexity, ability to unwind the living wills and stuff. All those are great things. The problem is, is how much work it takes to do some of them and how much uh, the, the, the connectivity of all these things and how it's impacting. So, the, you know, the need for us to file 500 pages to support our Volcker attestation, which we had to do the other day and something, is that really needed for a portion of a portion of a portion of a portion of our business? Those are the questions you have to get into and the balance and getting this right. And I think as you started to take what they'd done in larger companies and push it down, we believe that the regulatory relief for the smaller institutions, financial institutions, has to be real and fast because they just don't have the scale to be able to afford 
the 3,000 people we have in compliance and the, you right. know, in our compliance department, the 5,000 people we have in our risk. It, it, it is, and the rules are all the same. But which lending sector would you say is being hurt the most? I mean, what would we, where would the loans come from if Dodd-Frank was kind of rolled back a little well, I think, obviously, in the mortgage lending area, you've yeah. seen that cut probably in the pendulum swing here, and you could bring it back some and by fundamental changes, and that would be helpful for home formation. And that still has room to run in the economy. And you'd see it even in, you know, tedious things, which I won't bore people with, in the compliance with flood insurance and things like that. It just right. slows down the process and makes everything go slower. So not only would you have better, you potentially have better demand, but you'd also have faster process. Loans to startup companies uh, are defined to be high leverage transactions, different words now, but that make it simple. So that when you go in to make them, you can't make them. So right. we could have a company we've been working with that had equity for five, seven years and now is starting to produce a tiny bit of revenue and now wants to borrow because it has a decent equity base to help leverage. And we can't lend to them because it'd be a high leverage transaction. By definition, they don't have earnings or else they'd be in a different condition. The rules probably weren't meant to get to that, but they do. And those are the things we got to get balanced back in. So I think in the small business, medium-sized business area, mortgage would be the two fairies you'd see it fastest. So my first bank account as a kid when I was cutting grass was at Boatman's Bank in uh, Webster Groves, Missouri. Go to college, come back, new sign on the bank, it's Nations Bank, you know, then Bank of America Nations merge, obviously um, Bank of America acquired Fleet. Bank of America cannot acquire another bank because of, it has around 10% of the nation's deposits by law. But would you be in favor of seeing that law done away with to make it easier for you guys to we, make we, decisions like that? I don't. Our strategy would not be to do acquisitions because in the, the day, what do we need? We have the best retail franchise, the best middle market franchise, a, a great second best maybe investment bank in terms of fee size, third, second in a given quarter. We have a good trading platform that meets our client needs. We have the best wealth management business. So what do I need? So instead of acquiring to build out a city we're not in like Denver, we are opening branches because we're already there with Merrill Lynch, we're already there with the U.S. Trust, we're already there with commercial banking, and now we're going to build branches. So. Yesterday, we opened our first branch in Indianapolis. We started opening in Minneapolis, Denver. So in the top 30 or 50 market, markets in the country, we weren't in six, and we're, we're de novo branching into those markets, and we'll get to all of them. So it's organic. And just organic, because yeah. why, why would you do an acquisition? I don't need the capabilities, and it's distracting, and it would not add much to the scale of the company, and it would slow us down. And so I have an easier job than my predecessors did, because I don't have to worry about being here. Our market cap is 250, 60 billion dollars. Mm -hmm. It's you know, third or fourth largest in the world, third largest in the world or whatever it is, maybe fourth, something like that. We earned you know, $18 billion after tax last year. I don't have to worry about survivability. In the days where banking was still consolidating, right. for, that was different. And so you know, we don't need to do acquisitions. We won't do acquisitions. Um, and it makes my job more straightforward. But we do have to get coverage in some of these markets where we used to do where a company might do acquisitions. We'll just de novo branch and get it done. Uh, sort of back to Washington, we all uh, saw the healthcare debate play out the way it did. I wonder what lessons you took away from that um, as a CEO, you know, what to expect on tax reform and other things. Was it, did it inject a little bit of uncertainty? The markets obviously reacted a little bit, or was it kind of just a, taking the training wheels off a new administration? Well, I, I think it shows you the difficulties of getting consensus on some of these core issues. And, and so, you know, in the end of the day, uh, you know, that's the lesson learned. I don't think that's different. I mm -hmm. just think it's a new administration and, and last time, you know, it's not like something happened last year right. at this time and, and so, or the year before. And so it's just hard to get consensus. And I think, you know, those of us that are in business, you're looking for, you know, 
the uncertainty be brought down and also the consistency brought down and a few issues to be addressed with, you know, those are the important things everybody's searching for. And I think we got to make sure that those stay prioritized in the, in the minds of people uh, in order for America to keep making progress. So I, I, I wouldn't over ramp it, but it, it does, the market looks at it and says, well, this is harder. I think the market may have not understood this was always harder. It's right. just that now they recognize it. Um, but when you get to, you know, from a business con, uh, you know, in, the, in the, the Affordable Care Act, it's not really the hunt of private business because at the end of the day, a lot of people uh, don't understand this as much as they do. But the, you know, businesses in America have about 150 to 160 million people of American people are insured by the businesses they work for. So Bank of America, we have 210,000 employees. We have 900,000 people covered under our health care plans, retirees, kids, et cetera. So the dominant part of the infrastructure, three, almost three to one over Medicare, Medicaid, is d driven by private business. So as this debate goes on, the key is to keep that you know, right. condition there. Because at the end of the day, we drive a huge purchase. We spend $2 billion a year on medical care costs. And so I believe we're as good a bargainer as any way to get the best deal for our teammates and, 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 and hold the but healthcare, healthcare is hard because tax reform, you can you know, turn this dial one way and turn that dial another way and get a number, even Social Security. You know, raise the age, lower the age, raise the benefits, lower the benefits. Healthcare, you're dealing with hard questions, right? You know, uh, healthcare is expensive. This um, country's getting older. Um, it's hard to cut somebody off. Obviously, there's moral questions. How do you get that balance right when you have so many different people, such a huge volume of people that you guys have to provide we, coverage for? We, we, we look at it every day and we reset our plans and we're careful about how we do it. One of the things we did is uh, beginning back before the Affordable Care Act was thought about was we, we took a look and made a decision. At that point, everybody got the same plan and our company paid the same amount. Yeah. What we did is we basically separated that. So we brought the cost to the people that were paid uh, in the lower half of the company uh, salary and wages down by half. And if they do the wellness screening, they can basically get the family coverage for around $150 a month to maybe $200 a month if they and their significant other do the family cover, do the healthcare screening. And that's very beneficial to them because it sets a pattern and we can work around issues that might come up. And so we drove that down while we drove it up everywhere else. And so the idea was to make it more and more affordable for the lower paid people. That, that went before the healthcare. That is not different than my peers do in the business roundtable and other things that we look at the stuff you see the best practices and everybody's been after the same thing which is to drive the cost down to be competitive as an employer you know at the end of the day we have to go out in the market and bring in 10 to 15,000 new people a year to just deal with the runoff and right. retirements and everything you got to be competitive and so we build our plans to be that way so i went uh, a few weeks ago to germany for the g20 um, finance ministers meeting and i'd been at several others um, in the, during the obama administration this one was different usually it's the Americans kind of jawboning the Chinese or the Europeans to change their policies. This time, everyone was kind of jawboning, you know, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin to embrace free trade, to sort of, you know, get rid of some of President Trump's rhetoric on free and fair trade. You know, wh what do you see in terms of the administration's approach to trade? Is that, are you worried about um, whether they're trying to be more protectionist, or do you think this is just them kind of you know, sending a signal out to the world that things are going to be different? I think it's more the latter, and I think as you listen to Secretary Mnuchin speak, he spoke more about fairness and getting an evil de equal deal and, and things like that done. So I, I think it's more the latter. Uh, but the rest of the world was concerned, and so I was in Europe in early March, and uh, you know, just prior to that taking place for a week in Germany, actually, and the rest of the world was very concerned that America is going to 
somehow give up their leadership position on these issues and driving the world to these issues, whether it's China or other parts of Europe or other parts of the world. And so I think that's, that's a major concern because the rhetoric sounds different, the, the language sounds different. And so I think it's incumbent upon you know, Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mnuchin, and others to go out and make sure people understand what it precisely the discussion's about, which is the fairness of the, of the uh, trade imbalances and deficits and things like that, that they're working on as opposed to the concept of trade. And I think that, that gets jumbled. And I think the rest of the world needs to hear from the direct actors on that basis because it, that might calm them down. Right now, they are nervous. And so, because um, it's almost like if the Chinese or the Mexicans call our bluff, right, and we get into a trade war, is there a winner? You know, can the American worker win in a situation where we kind of shut the borders down in terms of trade and go back to a more kind of protectionist environment? Well, you're, you have to remember that we're in competition with the rest of the world, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And just the, the way the world works now, it's, it's the, you know, the information flow is huge, the services provided around the world, the ability to access uh, uh, raw materials, manufacturing capacity, um, you know, demand for products, it, it's a global business. And so the idea of retrenching from that's an impossibility now. Um, now the question is, what's the balance and all that? That's, that's the policy debate. But if you go back and think about uh, President Xi Jinping's discussion at Davos, it was kind of an interesting juxtaposition on the, t uh, the day I guess it was the day of the inauguration. He gave the speech, right? Or right, maybe two days before, two days before the inauguration, where he laid out a speech that he quoted the Gettysburg, or paraphrased the Gettysburg Address, that you know, development was for the people, by the people, and of the people. You start to think about that dynamic. That's kind of an interesting dynamic. And so, you know, he's he's setting a course that he has to, which is to create worldwide demand for products so he can employ the massive amount of people he has to employ in this country. You know, they have one course of action, which would be another question is how does that, how does the rest of the world react to that? And that's the debate that's up there. But I think he has opened himself up to say that, you know, we are an inextricable, you know, uh, undeniable path to development, path to trade, path to global, you know, and, and it's right. kind of interesting juxtaposition because the dialogue out of the United States was opposite and much was made of it. But I think in the end of the day, the dynamics of the world are going to be driven by more of the populations and the business, which, you know, you're not going to be able to tell people around the world you're going to start to not be able to consume these products and services. That this isn't going to happen. No, no. And so the question is exactly what terms. That's the different question. Right. But there's no, there, you can't turn back the ability to buy, you know, uh, great products around the world. That, that, that is gone. Do you, you know, I've, oftentimes in Washington, there's events on cybersecurity and every company has to have a plan. But obviously, you guys are in a different position because of the amount of very sensitive customer data you have on so many different people. One of the things that I think was kind of, I would, maybe we should say the most frightening about the cyber attacks of the past few years was that it was nation state directed. Right. A lot of people think it's hard for a private company to be, have the sophistication to defend themselves from a foreign country. How do you look at that? And do you, um, can you give us any sense about whether you, nation states have had their eyes on you know, your, your data? But we wouldn't, you know, those types of things, I think. You know, I'd leave the last part of it, I'd leave to the, to the world at large to discuss. But the, the reality is you, you have to be secure, you have to be safe, the trust that we have in our, our capabilities. The, the, the devices, and, uh, you know, whether it's mobile phones or tablets or other types of device, devices used to access are so different, even the phone systems, to, that allow us to operate in a way that the customer gets tremendous service and capabilities, but they have to feel it's secure. And that's what we drive. And so we spend, you know, 
a fair amount of money on this and it grows. It's probably tripled over the last eight, 10 years. Um, I don't ask those people to, you know, if they need to spend the money, they just keep spending. They've done a great job. But one of the things that has happened is the cooperation among the industry is tremendous. So we have um, a couple different initiatives, one called FSARC, FSI, AC, FSSIAC, whatever it's called. You know, these are industry groups where we share information along with the government. And the, the, the key to this is actually to have instantaneous information transferred to cure the problem. Right. Um, and just keep and have that happening real time. And, and I'd say with the Obama administration, with the Trump administration, and with the Bush administration before, you know, there's, a, there's a common goal to do this. The question of coordinating it all gets tricky, but we as a large institutions have been driving to get better and better coordination among us and with the uh, defense base and inside the government, the NSA and stuff, to allow us to be able to operate better and give that to the rest of the industry, honestly. And because in the end of the day, if you total what we spend as eight large institutions through the, that are in the financial services forum, it is a lot of money on this. And we're trying to get more efficient in how we do it. But more importantly, we're trying to make sure everybody gets the same information instantaneously. And you're seeing those benefits come out every single year. They get better every single week. They get better every single month. They so get the better. idea is if one bank sees digital fingerprints from an adversary, you share that with the other guys and say, hey, you know, shut, shut that down. And, and, and the question is, how fast can you share it, who you can share it with, and can you get the right. patches and all the different work done fast enough? And, and so that, that, um, that basic principle is key because the end of the day, they're not going to stop. And so the question is, how do you, how do you defend yourself? So you guys did, uh, you've brought your, under your leadership, brought your balance sheet down quite a lot from where it was pre-crisis. But, I, you know, there's still a lot of Americans, and we've even heard from President Trump, that believe Dodd-Frank did not solve too big to fail. You know, more must be done. He's talked about going uh, 21st century version of Glass-Steagall, which was, you know, the law that prevented banks and, and investment banks, commercial banks and investment banks from merging. What would you say to people who think that there are still some banks? You know, a $2 trillion bank is a huge bank. Right. That are, are you too big to fail? How, how can they feel assured that the next time there's another financial crisis, which there inevitably will be, that they're not going to be on the hook for, you know, bailing banks out again? Well, I'd start from the last point, which is the actual, you know, TARP funds were repaid. And right. if they weren't repaid, the industry had to pay them. The FDIC is a common insurance fund among the industry, the government guarantee on top. So when any bank fails, you can visualize we're writing a check for about 10 to 15% of that. So the bank fails out there, it costs the government $100 million, $15 million is paid by Bank of America. So it's a common insurance fund, as is the resolution fund. All these are common insurance funds. So ultimately, you need the government to stabilize the world like mm -hmm. they did in 08. And then you need the industry to actually have to pay to clean it up. Flip that to if you're now the largest bank, you have the high interest in everybody operating with very high capital and liquidity and standards. And so as the, as the work is done, you basically said, do you have enough capital? Yes. The stress test that the Fed does proves that. We have more capital after the stress is applied, which is a very draconian situation. Because actually, but is it capital or is it liquidity, right? And we have more liquidity. Yeah. And we have a resolution plan. And so what you've done is gone after the issues that were had. So if you look at it, the real issue that would happen in 2006 when house prices quit going up, and that's when the crisis started, it wasn't 2008 and Lehman. Right. It started, was that all the companies not in the FDI-assured deposit-taking business started really having troubles, and the funding sources were cut off. All those companies are now under the umbrella pretty much. Now, it's starting to creep back out there with shadow banking and other types of providers. But if you look at whether Bear Lynch at the time, they weren't in the umbrella. 
you look at Lehman, look, look at Bear Stearns, look at Countrywide, look at New Century, look at whoever. Well, WAMU was, IndyMac was, there were and, some And they ones. were resolved, like yeah. they, the top 10 bank has been resolved in every crisis in the United States and it's never caused a ripple. Right. Because the stability of the system does it and resolves and comes out. So WAMU was resolved, but the problem was there was no resolution capabilities to figure out what to do with some of these other institutions. And that was the problem. They're under the tent now. So between the liquidity, the capital, the insurance fund build up, the resolution, the pre-filing, you know, pre basically, right. of all the living will plans that says you can be liquidated, you have it. But the real, the real point, the two points to make, one is if you look at the stress test we run every quarter, but they publish, uh, we publish twice a year, one's the Fed stuff and the other we publish off cycle as our own. And you look at the losses and stuff, you, you look at what's happened is the losses and stuff have been managed down in these industry platforms to be managed. We did not lose money in 9, 10, 11, 12. We actually made money. We had $200 billion of cost right. without any preparation for it. Think about that. Now, it was not good for our shareholders, and we had to issue a lot of shares in 08 and 09 to build the capital up, and then we had to issue shares to bring the capital to higher standards uh, a little bit after that, and another billion out of 11 billion. We got all those back in. But the reality was we never lost money on the aggregate basis, and even only one year, I think we lost $2 billion of goodwill right then. So even without warning, you had that. Now, with the stress tests say that even, assuming it all happens next week, all the banks make it through with more capital than they had right. in it before. And so if you start to think about it, that's the safety, that's the good parts of Dodd-Frank, the stress test regime, the ability to look for, the assumption that you're going to hit a wall at 100 miles an hour without any preparation, and you've got to be prepared for it. That all helps stabilize. And so we've had serious issues go on in the industry since 2008 and nine, Sure. The government uh, not funding itself, which we could face again. Right. The Euro Brexit, the Euro breakup. And those have been yawned off a little bit because the, inst the, the stability institutions. So we'll see how it play out. But, but, but there's been, like, back to sort of the disconnect issue. Obviously, if we could have a politician on this stage, we'd have, like, the three least respected or trusted yeah. businesses, you know, between reporter and business and uh, banker. What is... We'll let you win that contest. Yeah. I think we're always first place. Uh, what could... What is... Bankers, need, what, what can your industry do to improve your image with Americans? A lot of Americans still think banks, I mean, we saw what happened with Wells Fargo, obviously not your bank, you guys weren't accused of anything like that, but there's still this idea that banks will try to pull a fast one if they can. Sure. And, you know. It's, it, it'll take time and, and, and us getting through a crisis and not having people uh, feel that the industry has the cause or the right. outcome. But the reality is, if you, if you th think about it, we drive, a, our, our basic view is we have a purpose in our companies to help our clients live their financial lives through connecting the world together for them, whether it's a person or a company. And then we have a basic view that we drive what we call responsible growth. You've got to grow no excuses or else somebody else will be running the company because you've got to be competitive right. in the marketplace. You've got to do it on a customer-focused basis, which is how we run the business. We don't make acquisitions, all organic, drive the customers. You've got to do it with the right risk framework, and we've got to be sustainable. And sustainable means that we've got to, how we treat our employees, how we treat our communities, how we engage with them, how we drive development, how we, environmental work we do. We have a $125 billion environmental program. If you drive it all that way and keep that balance, that's what's going to hold us in good stead. And we share our success with communities. I mean, when you think about what we end up, do is we drive, you know, whether you take our philanthropic work, $200 million a year in philanthropic work, 2 million volunteer hours by our employees, the, the work we do, um, to this, what they call CDFIs, community development financial institutions, a billion dollars to help them lend to the communities. The small business lending we do, which is growing every year and is you know, faster growing than most of the other pockets of the business. The mortgage lending, the CRA work we do, all that is all about sharing success with the communities. And what responsible growth means at the community level, 
the personal level of share and success. As banks do that, people remember why we're important and, and, and do it. Now, the reality is our customer score is as high as they've ever been. And so the, the customer's experience, so right. it's a little bit of a tell me, you know, I don't like my congressman, I like Congress type of thing, I like the country. There is a little bit of that goes on, but we drive to do it, and it's really just living our purpose and driving responsible growth, and it'll take care of itself. So you mentioned CDFIs. Um, obviously, they're very popular around the country, but the, the Trump administration proposed cutting federal funding to them, and I think having the business community kind of step in and support it, them more. It's a billion dollars of our money. This right. is not federal Do you funding. think the federal government should sort of pull back from that and let corporate America step in? I think the dynamics are... I, I, I'm not sure I'd agree with that, but I'm not sure that's the biggest issue on the yeah. table right now. But we we do a billion dollars plus in, out to them, and and it's really a chance to help institutions which are underscaled and need capital and need to be able to lend, but have a very personal touch to drive it. So we've done some things in the mortgage lending space to increase uh, down payment or decrease down payment levels, whichever way you want to look at it. But we're doing it in a social services context with a day-to-day. Uh, uh, -day, uh, mentoring program around it for the borrower so they can get through because the issue is if you don't have if you haven't saved enough money to have a 20 percent down payment that means you're you're a little bit more susceptible if you lose a job for six months or a week or a day something could happen and so what we do is use counseling to help them that is a very almost unscalable process but we drive it through local community uh, support, a couple different programs, to tunes of 500 and a billion dollars. So even outside of CDFIs, there's a lot of work mm -hmm. we can do, but I think CDFIs are a good program, but you know, we do it, we're not doing it with federal, we're doing it with our own money. So here's a question from Twitter. Um, how do you as a leader inspire your employees and ensure that employee ethics are in check? Well, we do it a lot of ways. Um, you know, basically, the, how you train people and develop people, how we talk about responsible growth, how we, when you go back to how do you make sure you don't repeat the past, we, mm -hmm. we do a lessons learned session all the time. We, uh, um, that we, we run in our development program saying, you know, a lot of people talk about development programs as how do I manage, how do I grow the company, how do I make strategic decisions. We also say, how can you screw this up right. and keep it and do it. Then we, were those conversations not really had before? Well, I, I think they were, but I think you have to go back to, you know, the mistakes made by most of the mainstream banks really, you know, we made some acquisitions which didn't turn out to be the way we thought they'd be. You know, it wasn't like, it was, that was more outside the industry. Yeah. But um, in the industry on conduct and ethics, we, we created an industry-wide group. We did an industry-wide training session for 40, 50 employees from every company and we'll continue to run that process where the CEO sponsored it. And we had ex outside experts and board of directors members come in and talk. You're just trying to remind people you know, we think of risk as all the things that could go right or go wrong, and, and we try to make sure people understand that. And then there's the individual human behavior part. In one part, you know, we watch the employees and the monitoring compliance and double check and triple check. In the other part, as you hire people, you really focus in on do they have the values to work in this industry and this company because they're entrusted with trust, and, and money and trust is a very uh, careful thing. So we drive it, but the way our compensation plans work and things that, you know, Every dollar is not a good dollar, as we say. You have to get revenue the right way. You have to get the profits. We have to wait for the profits to come in before you get paid. We've changed a lot of behavior that way. One of the things I was struck by, speaking of kind of the corporate um, structure, is that a lot of industries now have there's female CEOs at the head of the energy industry, um, aerospace industry, but the banking industry, I looked at the top 20 banks yesterday, there's still not a female CEO. Is there something preventing that? What, is, there a, is it a cultural thing? Why hasn't that... Well, happened yet. I, I mean, I, I'd have to think about in the top 20. I think uh, there are a few, and I think they're in the top 20. But, but the reality is, is that at our company, 
nearly half my direct reports are women, and there will be a woman CEO. And 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 you know, and I think the other banks feel likewise. It's just it's literally just at this point, what happens next? Just a matter of time. Yeah. Um, so obviously, Bank of America, you guys sort of stay out of the fray on a lot of hot button polarizing issues, but you did weigh in on the HB2 law in, in North Carolina. Can you, uh, this has to do with you know, um, access to bathrooms and, and transgendered Americans. Can you walk me through kind of your decision making process on that? Did you consult with the board? Did you just make that decision yourself? How did you decide to weigh in on that and not some of these other issues that are floating around? Well, there's two things. One, substantively, the issue, which was about one thing, quickly became about LGBT rights overall, right. and, a, and, a, and that's when it really became ticklish. And, and so uh, we had to step in because our values say how we operate the company. Um, we not going to let, we're not, we'll never change how we operate the company. And law has not, nothing to do with our uh, pride in industry, do what you want. But the idea is you want to be in a community where your teammates feel good. Um, and so we focus, the way I assess whether we get involved, it was really focused around what's important to our teammates, our clients, our shareholders, and our, and, and then we decide with a group, our ESG group, we have a, in our, in this case, our LGBT group inside the company called Pride, you know, that we consulted with them, you know, and they were obviously upset, but also trying to figure out what the solution's going to be and make sure they understood where we stood on saying it has, the old law had to be repealed, but the question is what's, what, how do you get that done and, and, and thinking that through. And so we consult with all those people. And, and the trick is, you know, we are a for-profit company and, and we do great things. I mean, we have, you know, as I said, 900,000 people depend on us for their health care, 210,000 people in our families employ, uh, depend on us, 50 million consumers depend on us. So we have to be able to have a for-profit ability to be able to provide the services we do. So you can't forget that. But on the other hand, you have the values and how you run the company and, and that's gonna do it. So we've had partner, you know, um, before, the marriage law was changed. We had partner rights going back in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. I think 93 was the first part of the time we did it. So this was like, you couldn't understand when this became an issue for some companies saying, oh, we got to do this. You're saying, didn't you do this 25 years ago? You know, right. and so, you know, so we weigh in what's important to our teammates. We weigh in and support our customers. And we weigh, and it's not without controversy because if we're in one or two households, believe me, we have one and two households out there. So take any poll and there's people on both sides of it. But we, do, we also don't go to things that don't, reach that kind of level of basic values and how we run the company. And that one was in our headquarters. So if there's a, if there's a debate about the construction of a border wall, it's obviously going to be polarizing. Yeah. Do, can you, would you see Bank of America staying out of it? I mean, you guys might be in a position where you have to finance, the, you know, con contractors who are building it, I right? thought you guys were financing. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it, it, we'll see when that comes up. The, the issue of immigration policy and stuff, we have to look at our own teammates and say, you know, what, is it, what are the implications? So you have young kids have come to America, school, came to workforce in our industry, they get basically a summer and maybe a, a year in the way the school process works and they're gonna be converted to H-1Bs and getting that process through and the time frames you have to get it through. That, those are just practical issues. So we just focus on the practical stuff in a lot of these cases. HP2 was different because it was our headquarters and we were the largest employer, private employer. We had to make it clear that this was gonna hurt the, the state and we did. And now they've made some good progress and we continue to push. We only have a couple more minutes, but I wanted to ask as a CEO, obviously we saw at the beginning of the um, sort of transition after the president was elected before he was sworn in, he took a lot of shots at private companies on social media. You know, whether it was uh, Lockheed Martin or Boeing about Air Force One, even some companies about moving jobs to Mexico. How do you, have you sort of had to change the way you look at social media and the government's sort of interaction with you? I mean, imagine you used to sort of get a phone call when the government had an, 
an issue with something you were doing, now you have to look for, you know. I'm not so sure we got the phone call. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, we, uh, I'm not sure, sure we got the phone call. So I, I'd say that, look, it, we, we've always thought about the way we run our company in regards to your policy at the state level, local level, and, and, and federal level, and global level, you know, is to how to educate people about the ramifications of what the decisions are. And then you have less about our company, because you know, frankly, if it's good for America, it's good for our company. And so, you know, I'd say that we, the idea of, you know, interfacing through, you know, those types of social media, we have tremendous uh, volumes that in our company between our customers and our company and all the different platforms. It's not something that I do because I get enough uh, exposure I don't need to get anymore, frankly. Right. Um, you know, with customers and they, they can all email me and they do and, and we straighten out what they have. So I, I don't have a, you know, I don't have an issue of having customers come to me. They come to me every day. Yeah, directly, but and I guess, I, that doesn't yeah. bother me at all. I don't need to have a device to talk to them. I got one which is called email me and Google my name, and that's my email, and you can email me. Um, so last question, have you ever mistakenly done the chip instead of the swipe? <laughs> we, uh, I, like, do I, even I, you know when you're supposed to? It's, it's, it's a question. We're getting there. Um, we have 100% of our clients now have debit and credit cards or chip enabled or we finally passed that. The merchants are about 40 odd percent, so we're getting there. But I don't, I use, don't you use, I use Apple Pay or Samsung Pay, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> um, well, Mr. Moynihan, that's all the time we have today. Uh, thank you again for joining us for this conversation and thanks to our audiences, both here and online. For more um, upcoming programs and video of today's conversation, you can go to WashingtonPostLive.com. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.